Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. All right, I'm going to start us with a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into the lesson. Father, we just rest in you and we praise your name that we have a safe place here to rest, to consider you and to, uh, to worship you together. And God, we're just asking for you to reveal yourself to us as we look at this big overview of a, of a very long and detailed book, a disturbing book. God, we wanna, we wanna hold on to the truth that you revealed to us about yourself in this book. And God, we wanna see Jesus in the text. I, I believe you, you desire for us to see him. And so would you help us to see him? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand whatever it is that you would want to teach us this morning? We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Judges, in a nutshell, is about God's grace to people who do not deserve it, who do not seek it, and who do not appreciate it once they get it. Judges reminds us what the psalmist says in Psalm 53.3, which Paul quotes in Romans 3.12. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Ultimately, Judges points the people of Israel and us to our desperate need for a savior. So just like we do in any book of the Bible, Before we jump into the text, we wanna ask some basic questions to just help us frame this book. So we're gonna ask the same questions we always ask. Firstly, who wrote the book of Judges? Well, just like we said in Joshua, we don't know who wrote it. It was likely multiple editors who compiled this book from lots of source documents and oral accounts. Perhaps even the same person or persons who wrote Joshua also wrote Judges, because there's some overlap information in the book of Joshua and especially in chapter one of Judges. Some people speculate that Samuel may have written the book. Well, when was it written? Well, the events that are happening in this book took place somewhere between 1250 and 1050 BC, but the book was compiled or written later than that. And just like many books of the Old Testament, they're written after the actual events take place. Some people believe that, that this was written sometime during um, the kingship of King Saul, maybe around 1045, which would have been re- relatively quickly. But others believe that it was much, much later, like after the exile in Babylon, that these books were compiled and put together. Well, to whom were they written? Or was this book written? Well, we know that it's an historical record for the people of Israel. It marks the time from the death of Joshua to the birth of Samuel. And Samuel was the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. Well, in what style was it written? It's very similar to Joshua in that it's an epic narrative with some poetry scattered throughout. There's various songs that are scattered throughout the book of Judges. It's not a chronological story just like Joshua wasn't. But rather, this book is snapshots of various regional judges who God raised up over various tribes and territories. These judges did not lead the entire nation. They led the tribes that they were over at the time. 
Well, what are some of the themes of the book of Judges? I think in a nutshell, it's defeat and deliverance. Forgetting God and his covenant brings war, foreign oppression, and despair. But ultimately, God will not forget his people even when they forget him. So let's watch this video together as we get an overview of the book. The book of Judges. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the promised land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now, don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now, remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again, and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here. Now, the stories of the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, they are epic adventures. They're also extremely bloody stories. Either the judge themselves or people who help the judge, they defeat their enemies and deliver the people of Israel. 
the stories about the next three judges are longer, and they focus in on the character flaws of the judges, which get increasingly worse. So Gideon, he begins pretty well. He's a coward of a man, but he eventually comes to trust that God can save Israel through him. And so he defeats a huge army of Midianites with only 300 men carrying torches and clay pots. But Gideon has a nasty temper, and he murders a bunch of fellow Israelites for not helping him in his battle. And then it all goes downhill from there. He makes an idol from the gold that he won in his battles. And then after he dies, all Israel worships the idol as a god, and the cycle begins again. The next main judge is Jephthah, who's something of a mafia thug living up in the hills. And when things get really bad for Israel, the elders come to him begging for his help. And Jephthah was a very effective leader. He won lots of battles against the Ammonites, but he was so unfamiliar with the God of Israel, he treats him like a Canaanite God. He vows to sacrifice his daughter if he wins the battle. This tragic story, it shows just how far Israel has fallen. They no longer know the character of their own God, which leads to murder and to false worship. The last judge, Samson, is by far the worst. His life began full of promise, but he has no regard for the God of Israel. He was promiscuous, violent, and arrogant. He did win brutally strategic victories over the Philistines, but only at the expense of his own integrity, and his life ends in a violent rush of mass murder. Now, a quick note here. You'll notice a repeated theme in the main section of the book, that at key moments, God's Spirit will empower each of these judges to accomplish these great acts of deliverance. Now, the fact that God uses these really screwed up people doesn't mean he endorses all or even any of their decisions. God is committed first and foremost to saving his people, but all he has to work with is these corrupt leaders. And so work with them, he does. This whole section is designed to show just how bad things have gotten. You can't even tell the Israelites and the Canaanites apart anymore, and that's just the leaders. The final section shows Israel as a whole hitting bottom. There are two tragic stories here, and they are not for the faint of heart. They're structured by this key line that gets repeated four times at the close of the book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The first story is about an Israelite named Micah who builds a private temple to an idol, and that gets plundered by a private army sent from the tribe of Dan. So they come and they steal everything, and then they go and burn down the peaceful city of Laish and murder all of its inhabitants. It's a horrifying story. When Israel forgets its God, might makes right. The final story of the book is even worse. It's a shocking tale of sexual abuse and violence, which all leads to Israel's first civil war. It's very disturbing. And that's the point. These stories are meant to serve as a warning. Israel's descent into self-destruction is the result of turning away from the God who loves them and saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And now Israel needs to be delivered again from themselves. The only glimmer of hope in this story is found in this repeated line in the last part of the book. It actually forms the last sentence of the story. Israel 
has no king. And so the stage is set for the following books to tell the origins of King David's family, the book of Ruth, and also the origins of kingship itself in Israel, the book of First Samuel. But the story of Judges has value as a tragedy. It's a sobering explanation of the human condition, and ultimately it points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. And that's the book of Judges. So we're going to build on this concept of king where the video left off for the rest of our time together. You remember ever since God chose Abraham and his descendants to be his people in Genesis 12, God has loved Israel with a steadfast love. He was to be their king, their ultimate ruler. And after using leaders like Moses and Joshua who prefigure Christ, he leaves his law for them to follow, but he was to be their king. God used the pagan nations left in Canaan as a test for Israel to find out if they would follow him and his law. It harkens back to the choice of the Garden of Eden. Will they choose God Almighty as king or will they desire to be their own God? Let's open up to chapter two in your Bible. We're gonna read some sections of chapter two together. We're gonna start in verse 11, 11 to 15. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. So we see Israel lose their focus they lose the adoration that they have set on a God who is good, and instead they fall prey to other gods, not the least of which is the God of self. And they believe that instead they are good. And this angers God so much that he actually allowed their enemies to, to defeat them. It's very clear that Israel had no king. Abandoning God as their king, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We heard that repeated over and over as we looked at each judge's story in our homework this week. And then it was summarized so well at the end of the book and at the end of the video. In chapter 21, verse 25, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So what was some of the evidence that God was not Israel's king? I think we saw quite a bit of it. I'm gonna to try to just itemize it a little bit. Number one, we saw blatant disobedience. We saw this all throughout Judges chapter one, where tribe after tribe failed to drive out the inhabitants of the land, failed to tear down their altars to other gods. Let's look at chapter two, verses one and two together. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. 
You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? And so even though the people wept at this news and sacrificed to the Lord, it becomes clear as we read throughout the book that the inhabitants of the land of Israel, of, of Canaan, indeed became thorns in Israel's side. And foreign gods became a snare or a trap for God's people. God made it clear what they were to do and what they were not to do. And they just blatantly disobeyed him. Number two, there was generational forgetfulness. We saw it in, Josh, in Judges 2, verse 8, that Joshua dies. And then we read in verse 10 that all that generation who were, all, who were with Joshua also were gathered to their fathers, so they also died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So even with all those altars of remembrance that Israel made that we read about in the book of Joshua, families still neglected to pass on their faith to subsequent generations. They may have known about God, but they didn't know the Lord for themselves. And may this be a warning to us to take the call seriously to invest in our children, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren to share the hope that we have in Christ. Well, next, there was misplaced worship or idolatry. We read earlier in chapter 2, 11 and 12, that Israel served the Baals, and these were fertility gods. So instead of trusting the living God to provide, the Israelites indulged themselves sexually in pursuit of what they thought they needed to do to follow God's mandate to be fruitful and to multiply. They likely saw themselves as very enlightened people to be so open to alternative ways of being spiritual. And this is a really stern warning for us. God on my terms is the very definition of idolatry. And spiritual voids in our lives, they don't stay empty. We were created to worship and we will worship whatever has our affection and our devotion. We really need to be especially careful not to idolize other Christians or even Christian practices more than God himself. When God is king, his love compels us to wholeheartedly adore and worship him and him only. Well, next we saw cyclical sin in this book. Israel's collective sin perpetuated a cycle that grew worse and worse throughout the book. I love how the video depicted that cycle as a descending spiral. It didn't just cycle the exact same way, it kept getting worse. Let's read about this in chapter two, verses 18 and 19. Whenever, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or stubborn ways. So not only would Israel return to sin after a judge died, but they would grow more corrupt than their fathers before them. It's important for us to see that tolerated evil is not static in our lives. It's progressive and it keeps claiming more 
and more territory in our heart and in our affections. Well, finally, we saw that Israel had incomplete repentance. We saw this in the cycle of sin, that every time Israel was enslaved or oppressed, they would cry out to the Lord. And the video even called that repentance. But this crying out cannot be confused with genuine repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 reminds us that godly sorrow brings about repentance that leads to salvation without regret. What we see from Israel, I think, is selfish sorrow. They were groaning because of their affliction and their oppression. They wanted to be rescued so that they could selfishly go back to their sin. Repentance, rather, recognizes the inadequacy of self so that one turns away from self and wholly to God, dependent on him alone for lasting salvation. So I think this evidence helps us to prove that indeed God was not Israel's king. Israel had no king, but God didn't abandon them. Rather, he extended mercy to them through the judges. So let's talk about these judges for a minute. Who were these judges? Well, first of all, we know that they were raised up by God. We read that in chapter two, verse 16. God enabled their success and he used them for his purposes. Because I think we, we were pretty clear on this, at least at my table, they were significantly flawed, right? We read about one woman and 11 men, six of whom we studied in detail this week. Their names were Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jer, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, and Samson. And in these people, we saw cowardice, presumption, lust, and violence, just to name a few. Awful. And we have to, we have to contend with the fact that they were commended for their faith in Hebrews 11, 32 to 34. We don't really come away from studying this book and thinking about them as people of great faith, do we? Perhaps that, that's because we want people noted for faith to be good in our eyes. But rather, they point us to God's undeserved grace. So as merciful as God was through these judges, the truth remains. Israel needs a king. So what kind of king do they need? Well, first of all, they need a king who can make them right in God's eyes. Rather than doing what is right in their own eyes, they need a king who is good enough and powerful enough to make just atonement for their sin, to make them right in God's eyes. Now, there will be a series of kings in Israel, even some after God's own heart, like David, who will attempt to turn them back to God's law, but none of those kings could ultimately make them right with God. Only a king willing to die for their sin could do that. We read about him in Romans 4, 25. Our great deliverer, Jesus, was handed over to die because of our sins and was raised to life to make us right with God. So not only do they need a king who can make them right in God's eyes, but they need a king foreshadowed by the judges. All of the inadequacies of the judges point us to the excellencies of the true king of kings. 
So I think they need a better Othniel. The spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel to, to defeat the enemies of Israel. But the spirit of the Lord anointed Jesus for ministry to defeat the enemies of our souls. They need a better Ehud. Ehud thrust a sword into the belly of an enemy king. Jesus overcame the powers of darkness by having a, thor a sword thrust into his side. They need a better Deborah. Deborah defeated Sisera, humiliated in death when Jael put a tent spike through his head. Jesus suffered humiliation and shame as he allowed spikes to be driven into his hands and into his feet on a wooden post. They need a better Gideon. Gideon's weakness made him the perfect person to accomplish God's purpose for Israel. In Christ, God's power was made perfect in apparent weakness. To fight the greatest battle of all time, the battle to overcome sin and death, Jesus entered the world as a helpless baby. He became vulnerable to death, even death on a cross. They certainly need a better Jephthah. Jephthah made an impulsive vow and sacrificed his daughter selfishly, I believe. But Jesus willingly sacrificed himself once and for all the sins of mankind. Finally, we need a better Samson. In the final climactic scene of his life, Samson put his hands on the two center pillars that held up the temple to Dagon, the Philistine God, where he was chained and made a spectacle of mockery. His death was required to defeat the enemies of the people of God. So his death foreshadowed Jesus, who was handed over and bound by Gentile oppressors and mocked as helpless. Jesus accomplished the ultimate deliverance of God's people by his own death and resurrection. So I think it's obvious. Israel needs God the Son to be their king, Jesus Christ, and so do we. So now we, along with all the people of Israel, who put our trust in Jesus Christ, we are the people of God. We are ambassadors of this true king and his spirit relives, remains alive on this earth in us, his people, the church. So as we close this morning, I would like for us to, to stand and I would like us to declare together what Paul says about our King Jesus in Philippians 2, 9 to 11. We're gonna read this and then we're gonna pray together. Let's read it aloud. I'll wait for everyone to stand. Okay, let's read this together. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you've given us the only king that could save us, the only king that could lead us. God, would you help us to follow him as, as Lord? Would you give us courage to follow him when, when it's hard to follow him? Would you give us the courage to obey? 
Would you give us the courage to pass on our, the hope that we have in him to our children and to our grandchildren? God, would you give us, would you just fill us with your Holy Spirit and enable us, Father, to worship you wholeheartedly? Would you help us, Father, to, to just abhor our sin, to not live in it any longer? Would you, would you help us? We need so much help. God, we need your spirit to lead us. God, we just worship you. We thank you. We praise you. We, we celebrate this good king that the judges point to, this king that is our king. We're just so grateful. Thank you for him. Thank you for our time together this morning, God. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you guys.